When it comes to transgender issues, there's no neutral ground. You know, people are either respond with anger or intense defense of it. And this makes sense because while we'd like to think it's not a big deal and it's just another medical issue, the truth is it isn't. Well, today we're going to talk with Irene Erickson from the Institute for Research and Evaluation and Marianne Mozak, president of Ascend. We're gonna put aside religious, moral, and ethical considerations for transitioning kids and deal directly with the medical aspects of it. Irene Erickson is a researcher that works for the Institute for Research and Evaluation. Her job is to review hundreds of the best medical papers on any given topic. We presented her research today on transgender and kids, and her paper that we reviewed is Transgender Research, Five Things Every Parent and Policymaker Should Know. Marianne Mozek is the president of Ascend. It's a nonprofit organization that equips and unites the national sexual risk avoidance field to empower youth to make healthy decisions about sex, relationships, and marriage. SRA, sexual risk avoidance, is an approach to sex education based on primary prevention, an established public health model used to promote wellness and eliminate risk. We're gonna be addressing transitioning children, not adult. I think it's very important to understand what the medical data shows about transitioning kids. Here's our conversation. Well, I've been looking forward to this podcast for a long time because we're going to be talking about transgender and kids. And I have two fabulous experts today, and I welcome them each to the podcast, Irene and Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Irene, I want to start with you. You're a researcher, and um, you have looked at the papers and the research that have been written on transgender and kids, gender dysphoria, and so forth. Can you describe what the process of transformation that a child goes through is? Because I think a lot of times parents are like, well, just take them to the doctor and they get a couple couple shots and they're done. What actually happens when a child goes into a clinic and is going to have wants uh, to transition? Well, of course, that would vary by clinic. And frankly, these days by country, because in the U.S., Mm -hmm. there is a much more aggressive approach taken to you know, quote unquote, treating uh, gender dysphoria or gender confusion than is actually happening in other countries now. Um, What is happening um, often in the U.S. is that a a clinician would probably a a psychologist or someone, uh, or it could be a medical person, would... um, meet with the parents. And I, I don't know the details of, of the various you know, types of, of protocols that are in place in these different clinics, but the basics are that they would be encouraged to do what's called social transition, which is to let the, if it's a boy, dress in girl's clothing and take on a girl's name and then for children. And then as soon as they begin the process of puberty, they would be put on what are called puberty blocking hormones that would suppress the natural formation of, you know, breasts and genitals and things. And um, then they would be transitioned when they're a little older, but could still be, you know, teenagers. 
certainly minors, to um, gender across sex hormones, which would be testosterone for um, physical girls and um, different kinds of estrogen, you know, preparations for physical boys. And then they could eventually end up having surgery to remove body parts. Um, so that's what's happening today. Um, this was not always the case. Really seems like it's exploded from say 2016 to now. Honestly and truly, I've been practicing for 30 some years and I think maybe in 25 years, I saw one genuine transgender child, but something happened in the US and there was an explosion. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Why does the U.S. approach it differently than other countries? That's a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. And in fact, um, it's political, is my observation. It's not based on the, on the science. In fact, you know, the, the United Kingdom had the largest pediatric gender clinic in the world, the Tavistock Clinic, and they commissioned an independent review of the research evidence about this kind of protocol that I just described and what were the effects and what was the evidence, how good was the research evidence in terms of quality. And based on their review, just in the last two months, they have done a 180 degree turnaround. They've closed that clinic and they have said, we do not recommend, this is the National Health Service in Great Britain, we do not recommend social transition for children, and we are not going to prescribe puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones or surgery for minors unless they are part of a, a study we have approved that is set up to evaluate the effects. And this same kind of a, a cautionary approach is seen in Sweden. Um, just to quote you what the Swedish National Board of Health says for adolescents, the risks of puberty suppressing treatment and gender affirming hormonal treatments cur currently outweigh the possible benefits based on continued lack of reliable scientific evidence concerning the efficacy and the safety of both treatments. So the US is really out of step now with what's happening internationally. And, you know, it does beg the question of why. Did they begin, did the UK and other countries? begin transitioning kids sooner than we did? I mean, are they quote unquote more advanced and they've learned more because they've been at it longer? Well, um, the Dutch did start this. They were the pioneers. And then it spread, I think, in Europe, maybe faster than here. I'm not really up to speed okay. on that uh, history of it, but it does, that is my impression. I, th I think it began in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, uh, that they began that in the in the Dutch uh, countries. And um, I, I would like to add, you know, I, I think it's interesting um, that, you know, uh, Dr. Meeker, you've been practicing for 30 years and uh, you saw one. Mm -hmm. Right. And we have this explosion. And I thought your question is is so good. How did how did um, United States become you know such a hotbed really? And I would argue that it has been very incremental but deliberate. And with the whole um, woke movement, it kind of has opened the floodgates of academia 
to embrace this, the whole cancel culture, and so not accepting um, anything, uh, anyone's sexual proclivity uh, is seen as as grounds for being canceled. Mm -hmm. And so that means we've done more accommodation uh, for this. Uh, and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of implications for this, but I think that's a short answer too. So basically you're saying, Marianne, it's kind of social engineering. Absolutely social engineering. I think, I think we've been taught, we are, we are told daily what to think and how to speak about issues of sexuality. There, there's also strong evidence, strong evidence about this issue of, you know, nurture or nature, biology versus environment. And the, you know, research with, say, for example, identical twins, 40% of the time where one is transgender, the other is also. That's a very high correlation. It's certainly way higher than random, you know, but it also leaves 60% of the time where it's not happening and where other factors are in play. And those are environmental and social, social influence. And we see this in the rates that have changed, as you said, Dr. Meeker, dramatically in the last, at least the last 10 years at most, I would say the last 10 years. It's been, yeah, 2015-ish. In Depending on whose measure you use, 900% increase, 1,500% increase in one of the European countries, 5,000% increase in the UK in teenage girls' rates of gender confusion. That is way, you know... That is a tidal wave. That is that it's is extraordinary. extraordinary, and it yeah. is, and it it really speaks to social, um, what they call social contagion. And it, you know, some argue, well, it's just mm -hmm. because we've now become more accepting, and so this has opened the floodgates, and everybody's feeling more comfortable. But if that were the case, the rates for boys would be skyrocketing like the girls, and they aren't. And the rates for um, mm -hmm. younger, you know, kids younger than teen would be going up as well dramatically because parents would feel more relaxed about bringing their kids in to be diagnosed and everything. And that's not happening. And one of the interesting things in one of the studies I looked at is that they actually reported that females, girls were more susceptible to social influence than boys in their study. And this is, seems very consistent to me with the pattern we're seeing. And this is worldwide. It's not just in the US, it's worldwide that this rate, I mean, the, the trend line goes like this, okay? If you plot it on a graph, it goes like that with the, the dip being at about 2015. Mm -hmm. So there are more girls wanting to transition to boys than vice versa. Well, and that has flipped. It used to be that this was primarily a, a male thing that happened with little boys when they were even, you know, two and three years old and then played out as they were older. And now it's flipped and there were very few girls. Now there are maybe as many as two to, you know, seven times as many girls as boys, again, depending on whose um, measures you use. And the other thing that I think we have to say at the outset, and then I'll stop talking so much, but that if you let this play out naturally for children that, that present as gender confused and say, I'm a, I'm a girl, a little boy that says I'm a girl, if you let this play out naturally without the social transition and giving them a dress to wear and a girl's name and everything, 80%, four out of five of those kids will resolve this confusion to be consistent with their 
physical biology by the time they're young adults. But we can't predict who those who that mm-hmm. one kid out of five is that is going to persist in his transgender identity. We don't know when they're five who that is. But we do know that if you start them down the path of social transition and then puberty blockers, they will almost without fail proceed on to cross-sex hormones and a full transition. So it interferes with that natural desistance process. And I think, you know, when you look at the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, gender confusion in kids in particular, the diagnosis is made really on perception and feelings. There's nothing objective about the diagnosis. There's a propensity towards, they feel a strong inclination towards. And when you're talking about diagnosing kids around those parameters, it's really dicey because what 10-year-old knows much of anything about life and who they are? And, you know, there's so many kids. I never forget, we had a, in our old neighborhood, a five-year-old boy who used to run around in the summertime in his sister's dresses all around us. And he played with all the kids. And we thought, oh, you know, that was back in the probably in the nineties. And we thought, boy, that's that, you know, his mom's not saying anything. It's okay. And he just was having fun. And and then probably 20 years later, I saw him as a patient and I said, I want to ask you something. I said, you know, do you remember when you used to run around the neighborhood in dresses? And I said, what was that all about? I mean, did you feel confused? And he said, heck no. I went through a phase where I didn't want to wear underwear and wearing my sister's dresses felt a whole lot better than wearing (laughs) pants. There you go. It's so simple. And yet Mm -hmm. I think that parents are so quick to overread. We want a diagnosis for everything, for every thought and every feeling that kids have. And then we want to be able to push them in a box and it just isn't fair. So Marianne, you interact with kids and parents and you have concluded that transitioning kids is unethical. Other people would say, no, wait a minute, we want kids to be who they were meant to be and changing them or or not allowing them to feel that way is unethical. Talk about the ethics of this, if you wouldn't mind. Well, you know, of course, um, you know, every parent wants their child to be, you know, who they're meant to be. I mean, that's that's a really noble sentiment. Um, but it's also when you're talking about, you know, uh, transgenderism, it's an oversimplification of that very well-meaning consideration. And when you look at medical ethics, of course, we need informed consent. I had a knee replaced, you know, and I had to sign all kinds of papers telling me all the risks, right, and, and the possible to the in, in the minutia. And, and so, you know... Mm-hmm. With this, with gender transition, you have to talk about not just the biological, but the social and the uh, psychological factors and risks. And, you know, it's highly unlikely that a child or an adolescent can really process um, some of these risks. I mean, if you talk about biological risk and you're presenting, oh, there may be the loss of reproductive capacity, say, that loss, um, how does a how does a twelve or thirteen year old actually assess that cognitively even, or the loss of uh, sexual you know functions so that they can have an intimate relationship, that it, it's just not possible. Or socially, how can they understand that transitioning could cause isolation 
or the rejection of a family member, or that they may become even a sexual curiosity, right? Um, versus mm -hmm. having a relationship that's genuine. And then in terms of mental health, the psychological experience, what people have seen, what clinicians, experienced clinicians have seen is that when a child is so focused on transitioning that they lose their, that's all they do is trying to overcome social anxiety and other parts of their life. Hmm. So, uh, choosing a career or education or whatever um, really takes a back seat. And then that produces a whole another group of anxieties. And so uh, I just don't think that, you know, a child is capable of that informed consent. Mm -hmm. You know, I totally agree because we know about brain development and mm -hmm. we know that full brain development and uh, their complete mature cognitive maturation doesn't happen until they're in their 20s. And that's also a great point you made about kids becoming hyper-focused on transitioning, that when they do that, that's all they think about. And they don't think about other things. And in a way, it shows us that focusing on transitioning could be a way to escape other issues that you're having. Because if you focus on transitioning, then you're really not dealing with anything else. We need to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. As you can tell, I'm talking with two women who really know what they're talking about. We've taken an intensive dive about transitioning kids, and I strongly urge you to go to the research paper Irene Erickson and Stan Weed wrote, where they're discussing this topic. Okay, let's continue our conversation with Irene and Marianne. Irene, parents and physicians are told that transitioning is good for a child, but you say the research doesn't support that. In fact, there are a lot of harms from cross-sex medical treatment. Can you talk about the supposed benefits versus the risk and what the research says about those? Yes. First, just to talk about this kind of the state of the research. One of the things that these international reviews found, like in Sweden and the UK and, and uh, Finland, I think was one of them, was that the quality of the research is very low. And, um, you know, it means there's no comparison group. The sample size is very small. You're making a decision based on a subgroup of, of 15 kids. So if three kids change their, you know, their score, you know, everything's different. The whole thing changes. There's no, uh, there's, it's self-selected sample. So, um, and there's, there's no controlling for, you know, confounding factors. So that's one problem. Another problem is that the research now has become so politicized that it isn't reported accurately or it's misrepresented. And I can give you some examples mm -hmm. of that. And I, I know this because I've read these studies. So, it, you know, this sounds like, you know, somebody say, oh, well, that's just a, you know, one of those kind of crazy right wing uh, accusations about, you know. No, you, you've really reviewed. My mantra is re you have to read the study. You have to read the study to know what it really says, because if you read the abstract these days, a lot of times the abstract misrepresents what's found. I'll give you an example. One of the most recent studies that claimed to show that these kinds of treatments reduced suicidality in teenagers, they found that suicidal thoughts were reduced, but not suicidal suicide attempts or suicide thought with a plan or suicide attempt 
or a suicide attempt that required hospitalization. All of those, none of that was reduced by these treatments, but it did show a statistically significant reduction in suicidal thoughts. But the researcher didn't, re all he reported in the abstract was the reduction in suicidal thoughts and then concluded that this treatment reduced suicidality when these more, more credible measures of more serious measures of suicidality were not reduced. And in fact, for older teens, the most serious indicator of suicidality actually was increased. But then he was able to do a statistical manipulation that was, you know, could be justified, it was debatable, that allowed him to not have to report that as a significant finding. I suspect him on this manipulation because he didn't report these other important findings in his abstract and his research is funded by the makers of puberty blockers. This same data set, when it was analyzed separately by someone else and they separated the biological males and females, found that for the biological males, the rate of suicidality was increased, statistically significantly increased. So you can see here how this research can be manipulated, misreported, and that is happening. I'm here to tell you that is happening. So the, the quality of evidence is low for these studies that say, that claim that there is benefit. One of them, at least, I mean, I could go into the details on that one, it would shock you, shouldn't even have been published, but it was published in a journal of the American Medical Association. So, you know, and now it's being criticized by people for these technical, really major invalidating problems that it has. This was the study by Tordoff that claimed to reduce dep uh, depression and suicidality by 60%. And it didn't, wasn't reduced. And the reason it looked like it was reduced was because their comparison group, 80% of the kids in the comparison group dropped out of the study, leaving only seven kids in the comparison group. They went ahead and ran the analysis anyway, did not report the drop-off in their comparison group, which was an invalidating uh, fact in their study. It should have it should have eliminated their study from publication and it completely invalidates their results. So anyway, I'm get, you can tell I get kind of worked up about this, but the evidence of benefits is very low quality. The evidence for harms is actually of better quality. And there is evidence that um, you know, bone, marrow, bone loss, bone density loss, um, heart problems, infertility, the inability to experience sexual pleasure, which nobody's talking about, but you'd think would be a big issue you know, for people, some of these people. There are many problems with this, possible cognitive uh, effects and mental health effects that there's more evidence for an increase in suicidality as I've looked at it than for a decrease. So, and this is consistent with what these international bodies have concluded. And even Medicare did a review of this and said, the yeah. evidence is not sufficient to be able to determine whether doing a sex change surgery reduces suicide. They couldn't, so there's no evidence for it. Well, I love that you're taking a lot of this research apart because the average parent out there would go, oh, well, that study was uh, published in Journal of the American Medical Association, so it must be really good. But that isn't true at all because there's so much financial bias. You've got drug companies who are, you know, sponsoring these studies, some of them, and you've got a lot of bias in the researcher. And that just nullifies a lot of the research that's that's happening here. 
So what you're basically saying is parents and physicians are told that um, kids need to transition because if they don't, they're going to commit suicide. And what you're saying is, no, that's not true at all. No, that's not true. They're told you have to decide if you want a live daughter, a live trans daughter or a dead son. And the research does not support that. And that is something that I think, Marianne, you've called emotional, emotional blackmail, you know, and it's what's been driving a lot of this is it, it makes all these proponents of transition, medical, medical transition, feel very self-righteous and virtuous because they are saving lives. And it frightens parents Mm -hmm. that they have to hurry up and do this transition or they're going to lose their child. And none of that is supported by the research. Yeah, that's, um, I read some in your writing, I wanted to talk about that, the emotional um, blackmail in there. Oh, I think Marianne, maybe you had written about it. What is your experience as far as depression and kids and how it plays into, you know, the whole transgender issue? Because I think that the general belief is, if a child comes into you, and they want to transition, and they're depressed, that the inability to transition or their dysphoria is causing the depression. But that's not necessarily true, is it? You write that it's it's a much more complex issue. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, it, it certainly is. And it's really, it's actually complicated, and it's not complicated. And I say that because there's a lot we know about puberty, right? And what uh, girls in particularly, and they're the ones that are showing this enormous trend toward transitioning. The boys and girls are are really, um, their rates of depression and anxiety are pretty much the same when they're before um, puberty. Mm-hmm. After puberty, when puberty starts, girls are twice as likely to become depressed. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, some people, I think it's Jordan Peterson refers to it as the, the negative emotion network or something. And, it, and he says that kicks in for females very strongly when, they're, when they begin puberty. And there's good reasons for it because, you know, the women now, their, their secondary sex uh, characteristics are beginning to show. And there's the whole awkwardness that comes with that and self-consciousness. And now they, they you know, so they start, um, you know, focusing on their social relationships. And then they, their, their awkwardness is also translated in how they relate to the opposite sex. And now we're talking about, you know, pubescent children here. So we have to keep that in mind. We all remember, you know, those awkward years. And girls in particular have what's called an, uh, an increase in rejection sensitivity. And uh, I wish I knew that when I was raising adolescent <laughs> girls, you know, because even a slight, um, you know, word or look or whatever they have a heightened awareness to that because of that self-consciousness. So it's really interesting that, you know, we, we attribute this depression to gender dysphoria at the very time when, you know, girls are going through puberty with all of its um, chaos and questioning and awkwardness. And uh, so I think that it's, it's misplaced to, you know, not recognize those internal stressors as the cause of depression. Mm -hmm. And as Irene said, uh, gender dysphoria is not the root causality of depression. 
Um, I am so grateful that you all are here. And if you have time, I'd love to do a second show. Would you be able to continue our conversation? Yes, that'd be great. Yeah, that's great. Well, this has been a fabulous time. And my hope is that you walk away knowing more than just the emotional and psychological arguments for transitioning kids. But now you have solid medical data to back it up. My intention is always to provide you with good data, not just anecdotal arguments or summaries of poorly done studies. I strongly encourage you to go to Institute for Research and Evaluation and read Irene and Stan's entire paper. And please feel free to share it with other parents, teachers, whomever you think needs to read the research. Here are my points to ponder. One, know your facts. Before you entertain transitioning, any child, even if they're 18, slow down. Don't let them rush into anything. This is a complex issue and the solution isn't simple. Physicians and transgender clinics may lead you to think that it is, but it isn't. You can't simply block puberty, add hormones, possibly do surgery, and believe your child will be much better off. It's not that easy. Two, empathize. Whether your child or a friend's child is considering transitioning, empathize with them. Berating them and telling them they're crazy will only drive them to the nearest clinic. These kids are in real pain. They're profoundly confused and influenced by their friends and teachers and other parents encouraging them to do the brave thing and stand up for who they really are. The problem is, deep down, they know that they aren't sure of who they really are. Three tell your kids to wait. Kids who are dead set on transitioning can always do it later. Friends and psychologists will tell you that transitioning will decrease the likelihood of them committing suicide. But as you can see, the research shows that this isn't true. In fact, when kids mature into young adulthood, 85% identify with their gender of origin. And if they had transitioned, they may be in far more vulnerable state to do harm to themselves. The best advice is to slow down, help the child with his pain and wait. Give his brain time to mature to the point where it's ready to make life-altering decisions. I wanna thank my great guests, Irene and Marianne, for joining me today. To learn more on this topic, go to the Institute for research and evaluation, that's institute-research.com or to Ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N. And their website is capital W, small e, capital A-S-C-E-N-D.org, weascend.org. Now let's review my points to ponder. One, know your facts. Two, empathize and three, Tell them to wait. Friends, if you need help or encouragement or answer to any questions about your kids or relationships with them, go to my website, meekerparenting.com. I have courses and tips and blogs and more to help you. And if you know a dad who needs encouragement, while you're there, check out my brand new Strong Father, Strong Daughters Masterclass. And always remember, great kids are raised not born.